Hello, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your humble host, Chris Wakalek, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this musical little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Andrea Spaulding. Now, if you know Andrea, like I know Andrea, then you're going to know her as that jovial woman you see at all sorts of different arts events on the island. Well, today we're going to get to find out quite a lot more about Andrea. For instance, we're going to get to hear Andrea talk about her and her husband writing and performing in a national children's show called Storytime. Andrea will describe in vivid detail what it was like for her growing up in Manchester, England. As well, Andrea will talk about some of her and her husband's earlier days on the island when they first moved here in 1990. And Andrea will talk about some old school pender names of a lot of people I'd never heard of before, some people who have passed away or don't live on the island anymore. And I thought it was really fascinating to get to hear some of the stories that Andrea describes the island being like not that long ago. And I'll tell you before we begin too, is that while I was doing the edit on this one, I kind of forgot I was editing sometimes because I got carried away in listening to the stories that Andrea was telling. She is a fantastic storyteller, and I think you will get to hear that as you listen along to this one. So please enjoy. We'll see you on the other side. And without further ado, here is my interview with Andrea Spaulding. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Chris. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. But, uh, we're here on a, uh, a Monday afternoon. How's your day been so far? It's been a great day. I've even had time in the studio this morning, so that's always good. What were you doing in the studio? I'm making small books in very interesting forms, not a regular book form, as gifts for my uh, friends on Pender at Solstice. Oh, Okay. And so when you say really small books, what what do you mean? Well, they're like four inches by two inches, so they're quite quite small. But they have interesting ways of the pages opening. They're folded pages that go every which way with different images on and little poems and fun. Neat. <laughs> oh, yeah, right on. How many, how many pages per book would you say? Oh, maybe only nine or ten. Okay. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not writing a book for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the gift if you write a book for everybody. You got a lot of work before solstice if you want to do that. Uh, okay, well, jumping into the traditional first question we always get to on this podcast, and that is what brought you to Pender Island? Well, we came because of friends. David and I had emigrated from England to Edmonton, Alberta in 1967. And in 68, made these friends who would become longtime friends in Canada, Pat and Angela Veria. And they moved west and bought Old Orchard Farm here, the Heritage Farm on Pender in Port Washington. And so, of course, we had to come out to see them, didn't we? Well, we just fell in love with the place and they'd got kids and we'd got kids. So we used to spend a lot of time in the summer together. And then it dawned on us, it was a bit unfortunate for them if we kept landing on them every summer. So one year we decided to uh, rent the house opposite. So we rented that house for a month and it was so expensive. We said, crikey, we should buy land. 
<laughs> put it as a down payment. So that's what we did. We uh, we bought a piece of property in Stanley Point with the idea that we would come here for our retirement uh, because we knew we couldn't work here at that point because we were musicians and artists and heritage consultants and we needed the internet and the internet hadn't come to Pender when we first came. So suddenly the internet came and that was when we thought, well, our kids are not in school anymore. We can live anywhere. Let's go and live on Pender. And uh, that's what we did. Okay. And so what year was this in? We first came to visit Penda in the very early 80s. I don't remember whether it was 81 or 82. We bought the land, I think, in 87. And we came to live here in 1990. Okay. So you guys were like early adopters of using the internet, it sounds That's like. That's right. Yeah, we were. Yes. In fact, we were one of the first people that did a book a collaborative book with other writers using a modem right back in the days where you had to do dial-up and for the receiver and, and let it go to the other end of the country all night because you couldn't use the lines in the, during the day when everybody's offices were trying to do it. You know, it just took too long. To oh, and so it was, it was clogged up. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, it must have seemed like magic back then. Obviously, the internet, like, it's hilarious to talk about now, right? About how slow it was and inefficient compared to what it is now. But that was probably an amazing invention. It was an amazing invention. It was back. an amazing invention. But I mean, so were computers. These were the early days of computers, too. And I remember giving a workshop to people, telling them how good it was to use a computer when you were a writer. And people looking at me blankly and saying, but what does it do? <laughs> You know, why is it faster? <laughs> and they, they just couldn't deal with the concept of being able to do word processing and, you know, have all the, the tools that you didn't have to retype everything. You know, you could cut and paste and move things around and it took people a long time to learn. Yeah, for sure. Some friends accuse me of being a bit of a let it. I don't even have a cell phone to this day. I'm, I'm a little slow to adopt new technologies, but I think that's really, that's really neat that in the 19... 90s or like or just prior to the 1990s well it this was a lot earlier than 1990s we were using computers in edmonton i mean we were we were using them so much for our daily life that we couldn't move without them it wasn't practical to do that yeah for sure could you describe that uh, the kind of work that you were doing while you guys were in edmonton uh, well, when we first came to Edmonton, David was headhunted from England to be head curator of natural history at the Provincial Museum and Archives in Edmonton. And that had been a centennial project. And basically what had happened in Canada is that the centennial projects, each province got money and built a new museum, but then they didn't have enough museum, trained museum personnel in Canada. And so they had to then headhunt in different countries where museums were actually professions to be able to uh, man them all. And so we came over from England for the opening of the museum and Dave headed up the natural history department, which eventually became a dinosaur department and became the Drumheller Museum. Oh, uh, So he he's had a very interesting career as a paleontologist, basically. And because of that was writing books. And I got sucked in. We both met through folk music. We both had a, a folk music profession going on at weekends and holidays. And we'd met through folk music. 
And I got involved in folk music in England in, and then in Canada and ended up doing special programs in the schools using Canadian folk music. And eventually all the things came together uh, when we got offered a children's television show using some of the Canadian folk music that we connected and the, the stories. And so we had a TV show every Saturday morning called Storytime with Dave and I and a mouthy little puppet, which I wrote and we both performed on. And by that time, it was the early 80s. We were earning as much money freelancing, doing all the collaborative stuff and the writing stuff and the performing stuff that we were at. Dave quit his job and we went as full-time performers, storytellers, musicians and writers. So at that point, we could have come to Pender any time in that period, because as long as there was the internet here, uh, but we had kids, we had three kids. So we wanted to get them through school before we came to Pender. But in actual fact, our youngest daughter came with us and went to Salt Spring on the boat. <laughs> okay. We, the That's a lot of rambling. <laughs> no, it's not, not at all. Actually, I just want to get back to the, the, the two of you and a mouthy little puppet. What was the name of this little puppet? <laughs> Pamela. Pamela. And in fact, there's a lot of people your age, Chris, that still remember us. And uh, I'll get stopped sometimes and people will say to me, were you on a TV show a long time ago? And I'll go, yes. <laughs> in fact, we were once stopped. We were visiting England. I mean, this show was never shown in England. We were visiting England and we were standing in the middle of very ancient walled city and in this castle square. And it was night and there were floodlights on. And how this woman recognized me, I'll never know. And she tapped me on the shoulder and said, aren't you Andrea Spalding from Brandywine? <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of uh, England. <laughs> right on. So how does it make you feel when people recognize you from from that long ago? Well, it's funny, but I guess it means I, I still have a recognizable face from my youth, which is interesting. And I, we were very proud of what we did. You know, we were the first children's TV show using Canadian material before Sharon Lois and Bram. And the only other person who was on the circuit was Rafi, and he didn't have a TV show. So, okay, it, so it was a good profession. <laughs> so four years and every Saturday, and so every Saturday morning, oh. eight to eight thirty. So the kids all knew us across Canada, but the parents didn't. And sometimes I'd go shopping in Safeways, you know, and in, in my scruff and my hairs in two bunches. I had very, very long hair then down my back to my bum. And my hair being two bunches and I'm in my T-shirt and jeans and I'm pushing the shopping cart and loading in the groceries. And once this little kid goes, Mommy, Mommy, there's that lady from the TV. And the woman looks across and a sneer comes across her face. She says, don't be silly. <laughs> so I waved to the kid and the kid waved to me. <laughs> That's funny. So what was the workload like for you guys having to put on a TV show, half an hour TV show every week? It was very intense. We would do three shows a day for a slap of days. Yeah. So it was very intense. And I, I wrote the scripts and uh, yeah, we'd get to the uh, film studio, the TV studio early in the morning and we'd leave late at night having put three shows to bed. Okay. And so kind of work for a month and then that would go for a while. And then they'd call us in, we need another set. So it depended whether they'd sold it, right? 
Whether they sold it. Oh, yeah, because every time they sold it, then they got enough money. This was CFRN it was done out of in Edmonton, so not a big production. So they had to sell it to different aspects of the network. And then we would do some more of the realities of TV, yes. Wow. Okay, so... So that that sounds as if it was very um, precarious almost. It's just, it, it was show to show. You didn't know how long. No, we would know there would be a set of 10 shows. Okay. Yeah. So we do put them in the can 10 at a time, you know, to a slab of 10 at a time okay. over several days. And then did you say from there you went into freelancing? Dave was still working when we started the TV show, but that's what then put us over the top of enough income while we were still raising our kids that. Yeah, he could quit at the museum and we'd got books to write and we were traveling all over the country. We were performing at uh, folk festivals and in libraries. I, I've traveled just about everywhere except Quebec because I don't speak French. So. <laughs> and lots of school gigs. and Yeah, it was fun. Okay. Well, what are some lasting memories you have from those experiences that you had traveling across the country? Oh, one of the main ones is Winnipeg Folk Festival when it rained. And I mean, you think of the prairies as dry, but when it rains in the summer on the prairies, it really rains and everything's a mud hole. And we had our three little kids with us. And so I cut giant garbage bags. I cut head holes for them and just put them inside the giant garbage bags. And they trotted around all day in these because they could sit down or whatever, you know. So every day I'd just find another garbage bag for them. So our kids were known as the garbage bag kids. <laughs> that, was, that was a good one. What else? Fort McMurray used to invite us up there every year. I hate to tell this story, actually, because, I mean, we're very anti-oil at the moment. But <laughs> Fort McMurray... Uh, invited us up every year and we did concerts for the kids up there. One year they said to us, um, anything else you need, Spalding? So we said, no, we're fine. You know, we've got the dressing rooms, we've got the show, we've done the sound check. Now, are you sure there's nothing else you need? So we said, no, we've got our water, we've got the table for the props. No, we're good. Are you sure there's nothing else you need? So I looked at her and I said, What's going on? Who did you have last? So they said, Sharon, Lois, and Bram. I said, and what did they want? And they said, well, they couldn't sing without papaya juice. And this was <laughs> Fort McMurray in the 70s and never heard of papaya juice. Oh, my gosh. There was nowhere to get it in town. So they were wondering what we were going to come up with that they'd not got because that would be very stressful from them. They were saying, no, no, that's fine. What is good? <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, it seems like such a small request right now, but yeah, the context. Well, this is it. Like in those days, nobody drank papaya juice outside of Toronto, but of course they wouldn't know that you didn't get papaya juice in the West. You know? Sure, I can't perform without my papaya juice. <laughs> and so, when you said you came to live on Pender Island, you and your husband uh, in 1990, and then you could work from home and do the freelancing work. So, how were the first few years at that uh, point living on Pender and uh, how was that experience? Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, we, we'd been very, very busy in Alberta and burning a candle at both ends. You know, we were juggling like three careers and three kids and each other. And it was just, Pender was so peaceful. 
so we could concentrate on things a little easier. But there was a lot of funny things that happened on Panda. When we first came, uh, we were asked to perform in the school. Now, in those days, there was no Driftwood Center. There was just a little tiny shack. And I think there was a petrol pump there, but it used to run out of gas, like it wasn't a big garage. And some days there was no gas until the truck came over. And on those days, a lot of us had cars that ran on hot air (laughs) until we could get to the ferry and fill up. And there used to be a gas station that was demolished not long after we came here. The first gas station before Sydney, and it makes me laugh that it's now been redone, that one just on the edge of Sydney. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that used to be a little old gas station, and we used to pile down the, the highway on fumes to get there to fill up because there was no gas on Penna. Anyway, the school invited us to perform. We said, okay, fine, and we set a date. What I didn't know was that they had to raise the money to bring us in. And they did it through hot dog sales. So we had a wonderful day in the school. We did a couple of performances, and I think we did a workshop for the teachers. Afterwards, they were giving us tea in the staff room, and they said, oh, you want paid, don't you? I said, yeah, that'd be good. (laughs) So in the staff room, there was a big wooden wardrobe. So they went over, they unlocked it. And they took out triple paper bags full of pennies, nickels, and dimes (laughs) because there was no bank on the island and they'd raise the money by the hot dog sales. So we got the fee in this enormous bag of pennies, nickels, and dimes. Here you go. Money's money. That's right. So we we laughed like trains and tucked it under the car seat and I took it back to uh, Edmonton where we were living and my local bank had been used to us getting very odd checks and things because you know things are written in a hurry when you're performing and people don't always remember your name or don't know how to spell it right so the bank got used to all kinds of deviations on how Brandywine actually got paid so I walked and I said I'm not you're not going to believe this one (laughs) and put the bag on the counter and they all rolled their eyes because those were the days when you had to count everything by hand. Yeah. (laughs) We also used to come out long before we lived here. We'd come out and visit with Pat and Angela and they had the farm. And so we liked to come out when it was fall fair. And the fall fair in those days was uh, held at the school. So there was one memorable day where we helped pick the apples that were going to be displayed, but we also had to get the animals down. But unfortunately, we were out of gas, so we couldn't use my car. Andrew, they'd got two cars, so she she was doing the fruit in the van. And I had to drive the little car with the ram in the back, but the front tire had had a puncture. So we'd had to change the tire and put one of those little ones on. Have you ever tried driving a car with a little tire on in the front on Pender Roads? No, I they haven't. They weren't paved like they are now, so it was very bumpy. And this was a car, and I got a ram in the back seat. So 
It was a little stressful with this thing breathing down my neck and trying to stay and not get on in the ditches with this uh, wobbly front wheel. So I got down to the fairgrounds at the school and I thought, how am I going to get this lamb out? Where am I going to do it? So I sort of went within reach of the pen and thought, well, I'll, I'll park here. I made sure that there was not another lamb in the pen, so I could get it in. And I opened the door, but before I could corral it, it just raced out, leapt out, and raced round the fairgrounds, and it took us ages to catch him. But then the only way we could do it was in this one pen. He, we've got it, and there were other sheep in there. So there were a whole bunch of sheep that year called Andrea, because I'd put the rams, the ram in with the sheep. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> so, so they named the sheep the after lambs, you. The, the lambs, lambs yeah. were it, called Andrea. Yeah. Well, what what <laughs> that an, city woman put the ram in with the sheep? What an honor! <laughs> Funny, is you said the roads weren't even paved at that point. Well, they were kind of paved, but they weren't paved as well as they are now. Okay. And there certainly wasn't any. Yellow lines. <laughs> no, we just got a nice big yellow line. Yeah. yeah. It, it ends before our place. We're obviously in the bootness. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about how things were different because obviously there was no community hall. That's why things were taking place at the school at that point. That's right. And in fact, there was still no community hall when David and I came to live here. And we held a lot of house concerts because, of course, being in the music business at that time, we knew lots of. Uh, focus and if they were coming out to play in Victoria or Vancouver, they'd phone us up and say, Hey, Spalding's want guests overnight for the weekend, you know, in between gigs. And I'd say, Yeah, but you've got to sing for yourself. <laughs> so we'd, we'd do a whole bunch of house concerts and we'd sell 30 tickets and we'd sell them at the bakery. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, they'd be sold in a couple of days. And that was the house concert, yeah. Wow, right on. I didn't even know that history existed on the island, but that's, yeah, that's really yeah. neat. Were you guys pretty much the only people doing that around that time? Or? Around that time, yeah. And uh, Kevin Oak and Sherry Oak had also come to live on Panda in 1990. And uh, they helped us because, you know, we had to get chairs from places and make sure there was enough chairs for 30 people. And we had a spare bedroom, so we put the artists up. Yeah, Sherry and Kevin were really helpful with that. Yeah. That's great. And so was there a lot of community support? So was it pretty easy to sell 30 tickets? Oh, absolutely. There was community support. Yes, as I say, the tickets would only be on sale a few days and they'd all go. Yeah. yeah. And we had good people like David Essig. We'd known from the folk days. He came over. Um, Les came and did a couple of shows because his mum was living here on the island, Les Quitso, and he you know, wasn't really known on Penda then. So he came and did a couple of house concerts. One day he came with an entire band and they spilled out of our big room downstairs and onto the patio. It was great. So sure. Got the neighborhood rocking. <laughs> right on. Was this in Stanley Point? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, who else came? Oh, Daniel Lapp came and did a couple of house concerts long before he had connections on Penda. Yeah. So... That's really interesting. Yeah, right they on. were fun. Yeah, 
You know, and while I have you here, because when we spoke earlier, you said that when you looked at the list of guests that I've had, that uh, you're one of the guests who have been here uh, longer than most other people who have been guests before. But I'm just sort of curious about your perspective about how things have changed or how things were different from when you first came to the island to now. What sort of changes have you seen in the last uh, 30 years? Oh, lots of changes. The main one around grocery stores. Uh, when we first came to Penda, the grocery store was the Port Washington store at our end and the Magic Lake Market. But in those days, you sure didn't buy your meat on the island. <laughs> it really? Was, uh, it had sat around a long time, yes. So you, you did have to go off island for meat and things like that. Fresh milk was difficult to get. You know, people brought stuff over on the ferries only occasionally. And in those days, there wasn't refrigerated trucks. When Southridge was sold, because Southridge was an animal food store and a video store when we first came, you could get your videos from there. So when the first owners sold and they turned it into a grocery store, they didn't have refrigerated trucks and they would go into the city and buy a whole bunch of stuff and pile sleeping bags on top of it to try and keep it cool. And sometimes in a hot day, you know, the milk just didn't survive. Yeah. Uh, but the Port Washington store, we just loved. It was owned by a fellow who had had a bookstore in Lethbridge and we knew his bookstore in Lethbridge originally. So when he sold up, he brought the stock that hadn't sold and that was became part of the Port Washington store. So you could buy really neat things like cheese and milk and fish bait and all kinds of interesting oh nails and fish hooks and caviar and you could also get books and Meg Buckley's pottery. Meg Buckley had a lovely studio in Salt Spring after she moved on Pender, so some people may still know her. But he had this fabulous corner with the most esoteric books you've ever seen in your life. So we'd go and get a few groceries and pick up a really unusual book while we were there. And then David Nance, that was his name, uh, he sold it to Russ Searle. And Russ had a really good grocery store there. But lots of people didn't have cash in those days because there was no bank on the island. So he ran tabs. So we used to come over for the month of August to camp on our property. And we'd drive off the ferry and we'd go straight to the store and I'd pop my head in and shout, Hey, Russ, Shirley, Spalding's are back. Can you start the tab? They'd go, sure, and they'd put our name down. And we would go and shop there all month. And then the last day, as we go into the ferry, we'd pop in and pay our bill and drive off until the next year. And no cash ever changed hands. We'd bring a check with us, and that would be it. Wow. And that's how the island functioned in those days. That's super interesting. Isn't that nice? It is really nice. It was really nice. There was a level of trust, and it was wonderful. It was kind of sad when, in fact, it was very sad when Russ had to uh, close the store because he had to open at the Driftwood Center because if he hadn't opened at the Driftwood Center, somebody else would have done and his store would have demised anyway. So, yeah, very sad. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I just want to bring it back to when uh, you and your husband immigrated from England in 1967. And it's kind of a big deal to move from one country to the other. That's right. Incredibly big deal. But maybe let's just talk about your time growing up in England. Where exactly were you born? And what was your experience like growing up in England? Well, I was born just at the end of the war in Manchester. So a big, big city. We were very, very working class, like a lot of people in the north of England. We were all very poor. And uh, I lived within sight and smell of the ICI chemical works. And you never knew what color smoke was going to come out of that chimney. The pollution was horrendous. And we all had to have white shirts to go to school, the school uniform. And by the time he came home at the end of the day, the shirt colors were all grimed and black where your skin rubbed against them. And the same with the men's collars. So mum spent a lot of time scrubbing shirt colors to keep clean. And you, like we had to scrub our necks every night because the the pollution from the air, the, the black got ground into your skin. I could go on and on about living in England, but the one thing that the city of Manchester did after the war, it said no matter how poor children are, if they go through school and they get accepted into further education, the city of Manchester will pay for them. And that's what paid for my further education and my brother's education. And it was the most wonderful thing that Manchester did because it meant its generation was educated. The new generation after the war was educated, which was key in the rebuilding of Britain because Brit the big cities in Britain were devastated by bombs, just the city centers wiped out. And of course, the young people, all the young men, so many of them were killed. So I went away to teach training college with everything paid for and uh, and a grant so that I could buy my books and my incidentals. And I'm truly grateful to the city of Manchester for that because my parents would have never been able to afford to send me and my brother to college or university. Oh, thanks for sharing. Is uh, older brother or younger brother? He's a younger brother. Younger. Yes. What is what is his name? His name's Gavin, Gavin Clark. And... Uh, He's become uh, quietly very well known in scientific and fabrication circles in England because he devised a very special honeycomb plastic that is now being used uh, in the channel trains going to France in the building of the doors and the floors because it's very, very light, very, very uh, strong honeycomb that is in the interiors of the doors and interiors of the floor of the train. And it's also up in Skylab. So what is Skylab? Skylab, yeah. uh, the space station. Oh, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> that's what happens when you don't watch the news very much. <laughs> don't realize what's going on in outer space. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very proud of what he's achieved. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And so growing up in Manchester, it's really interesting that you had the city paying for your post-secondary education. And what other memories do you have of uh, growing up within the city of Manchester and England and uh, your time there? 
the delightful thing about being a child in the 40s and 50s, being a small child, is that it was very safe, even though it was a big, dirty city. And nobody bothered about where you were as long as you came home for your meals. I don't know what they'd have done if you didn't come home for mealtime. <laughs> so I wandered far and wide with no, I was a bit of a loner. So I wandered far and wide, making up stories and finding little bits of greenery. I loved the country and there was no country where we lived, except for one patch of woodland and bombed out plot that became used as uh, what you call them over here, allotments, we call them in England, like the community garden. And so I used to spend a lot of time at these allotments because there were goats there. And so I'd go and help out with the goats and and I'd spend a lot of time in this little tiny patch of woodland, which was the closest I could get to the country. It was only a small patch of woodland, but it did have bluebells in the spring and oak trees that you could climb. And in fact, when my brother was born and my mother was away in the maternity home for several days, my dad took me to this patch of woodland and we found an acorn and we brought it back to the cinder patch that was surrounding our house where dad was painfully trying to grow vegetables. If you'd got a little tiny piece of land, you grew vegetables because there was no food during the war, you were on rationing. And we planted this little acorn and in fact, it did grow into a sapling. And when we moved to a slightly bigger house, it came with us. And the last time I went back to that house to see my aged parents before we moved them into a home, there was this beautiful big oak tree in the backyard that they were sitting underneath in a couple of deck chairs. And in fact, that story became a book, a story that I wrote in a book that became given away to all kids by Parks Canada to, about what you can do you know, just the story of one little oak tree and how it can add beauty to places. That's such a great story. It's called a special gift. Yeah. And I believe they're still giving it away in Arbor Day in some areas. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were younger, it sounds like you were really seeking out a connection with nature. Absolutely. Which is why I think we ended up on Pender Island. <laughs> yeah. And of course, my husband is a naturalist and paleontologist. I mean, we spent lots of time doing ecological things, nature-oriented things, you know, dinosaur digs. At one point, uh, when we were working freelance in Alberta, we had a contract to write about the life above the snow line in Whistler's Mountain in Jasper. So we're dealing with tiny little plants and things that grow on the top of the mountain and the animals up there. And that became a book for Parks Canada called The Whistlers. And the same summer, we were also writing a teacher's guide to Dinosaur Provincial Park. So we did, we camped and stayed alternate weeks with our kids, either up on top of the mountain or down in the Badlands. That was quite the summer. You know, it's it's interesting you talking about all these different artistic uh, endeavors that you've done in your life. What is it that has inspired you or kept you going to keep being creative? My mom would say it's because I'm nosy. 
I, I've got a real curiosity of how about how things work, about how, how places interact, how people interact with them, and and that drives me. It, it's so special to see how how nature creates these places, and then people go and interact with them, and and you see the story. It's important to find the stories that the people tell and that the land tells and how it works together symbiotically. And I, I've always had this curiosity, and I love listening to people, and they tell me stories. And I, I love listening to the land and the stories that they can tell. As I say, I, I was a loner as a child because I always used to follow my curiosity and go off on these weird places that nobody else wanted to go to. And that has never changed. So an innate curiosity about what makes things work. Yeah, that's never going to that go away. Does that sound crazy? <laughs> no, not at all. Not yeah. at all. I've spent a lot. And of- I mean, it's magical. The, the magic is all around us of how how the earth works, and yeah. Yeah, I can I can relate. I've spent a lot of time in the outdoors and in uh, the wilderness by myself uh, a lot. And it's a special, beautiful, amazing, wonderful, giving, teaching place that uh, is, 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 is incredible. It's amazing how much time we spend indoors when uh, the, the magic of the outdoors is just like uh, never ending. Yeah. Well, you know, Manchester was such an interesting city. It was an old, old city with, you know, centuries and centuries of history including the history of rural people coming to live in Manchester with the advent of uh, the cotton industry when the first factories were built. Like the industrial history in Manchester is fascinating. And the cotton factories, both my grandmothers worked in the cotton factories. And I was always fascinated by this because they had no teeth. They, I mean, they had false teeth, but, you know, Kids nowadays don't often see false teeth and what happens when you take your teeth out. So, of course, as a little kid, I was always fascinated because at nighttime, my grandmas took the teeth out. And in those times, dentists weren't very good, so the teeth didn't fit very well. So sometimes they'd slip down when they were talking and they couldn't afford good dentures, right? So their dentures would rub so they'd take them out early in the evening when nobody else was going to come and visit. They could take the teeth out and they resided in a glass of water beside the bed, right? So I was always fascinated by this, but why haven't you got any teeth? And my grandma once told me this story, which I'd never forgotten. She was 14 years old when she went to work in the cotton factory. And her job was to take the thread of cotton and put it in the weaving looms. So she had to take that cotton and she put it in her mouth and she drew it out between her teeth to get it all smooth and wet. And then she could insert it in this little eye. But because years and years of doing this repeatedly wore away all her teeth. And that's how you often knew girls that had been working in the factory just by seeing them on the bus, because even mid-teens would have false teeth because they'd worn the teeth away by drawing the threads through it. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. <laughs> fascinating though, isn't it? It's fascinating, <laughs> but also pretty horrible too. That's such an unfortunate thing. That's yeah, really... you never think of these things. You know, it, it was just the way it was. And the there was two things about the cotton factories that I never forgot. 
they had long, long, tall, tall chimneys. Tall, tall chimneys. They were always about four stories high. So they were long brick buildings, about four stories high, because the the, uh, weaving looms were so heavy that you couldn't have more than four stories. And then these enormous chimneys that this dirty black smoke would come belching out because they had to burn all the waste. And I guess everything was coal-fired in those days too, which is why the smoke was so polluting. So the smoke would come out and the layer of pollution would be starting at the top of the chimneys. So that was your sky level. When I was a little kid, I thought that those chimneys held up the sky. Because <laughs> that was my experience and that was the sky. Yeah. The other thing, the pollution was so bad that in the winter, when the inversions happened, you would have this thick fog. So this thick black and yellow fog would just blanket everything. And my mother would always know that I wouldn't be coming home from school on time because, you know, I was by this time I was at school across the city. And so I had to come on two buses and they wouldn't be running. So I would have to walk. My dad would have to walk. And all the sidewalks on the main street were full of thousands of people walking home. And the smell was awful. And even when you finally got home, you opened the front door and the fog had permeated in the house. So the whole of the house had this haze around the lights and around the fire. But it was so scary and yet totally fascinating to walk home in this because it was a different world. And you heard things, you didn't know that that tree rustled in that corner. And you'd hear these footsteps and it it was like ghostly footsteps, you know. Is this a neighbor or is it the axe murderer? (laughs) There was this terror. And then there was one day when I truly did get lost. I just took a wrong turn and I had no idea where I was. And I could hear these footsteps coming towards me and coming towards me. And when this man came within about three feet of me and I could just see a silhouette, but he was like the invisible man all swathed in bandages because he'd got a scarf around, he'd got his hat and a scarf around his face and this muffled voice saying, evening. I said, excuse me, can you tell me where I am? Lover, you lost. I said, yes. <laughs> so he said, Where do you want to go? And I told him my address. And he said, I know where that road is. And he took me back through this road that I had no idea where we were going. I mean, was he taking me back or was he going to take me to the, <laughs> the murderer's house? I was absolutely terrified. Yeah, well, sure. You know, my my imagination just... And then suddenly I recognized a gate and I knew where we were. And I was able to say, okay, I can do it now. I know where I am again. Thank you. And it was a a friend's gate that had got a brass dog head on the number of the gate. Ah, 
that's Jenny's house. And so I got home and everything was fine. I never told my parents how scared I'd be. It's it's interesting, like when we have power outages on the (laughs) island, I love how our perception changes a bit just because all of a sudden you don't have all the electricity and the light and everything and it just shifts your perspective of what happens but it's not scary i don't find power outages no scary you know and i don't and i don't mind the mist and the fog here because what we call fog here after the fog in my childhood this is just like hollywood effects you know where the the girl goes dancing through the mist. <laughs> sure, I know yeah. the fog you're describing. I've don't. I've never experienced fog that thick before. That sounds and yeah, just to shut terrifying. things down where nobody can drive. Everybody has to walk. That sounds That's remarkable. Right. Yeah, you, they don't get them like that in England anymore because all the Clean Air Act has come in and stopped all this pollution from the factories, and there's no coal fires anymore. And so, I'm sure there's fog, but it's not not like that. Okay. Well, before we back away from England here, the question I've been asking a lot of people in long-term relationships was how they met their partner. And uh, I guess I'll ask you the same. How did you meet your husband? I hired him. What? What are you talking about? You hired your husband. What are you, what are you, what are you, what's going on here? Um, I told you I went away to teacher training college and I became the social secretary at teacher training college. And I was really, really interested in folk music. And I'd heard that there was this uh, folk group in the next town to where I was at college. And so I wrote to them and asked them if they want to do, wanted to do a gig at this woman's teach training college. But I thought they were just a bunch of students singing at the local pub like we did. I didn't realize they were a semi-professional folk group and sort of a bit older than us all working and professional people. So I wrote them this letter offering them $10 a piece. There was three of them. So they all laughed like trains. One of them said, girls teach a training college in the middle of Derbyshire? Sure, we'll go. (laughs) So they came and uh, the rest is history. (laughs) Dave and I met and we've been singing together ever since. Was it love at first sight, or how did that first, uh, first um, interaction go? Not quite second sight, because I fancied his partner to start with, Frank. Um, then I found out Frank was married, so that was, you know, that goes no further once you find out somebody's got a wife. Uh, so then I, you know, I really liked this guy, but uh, we went to hear him sing. My girlfriend and I hitched to Chesterfield to hear him sing at this club that uh, they ran and uh, he gave us a ride home and kissed me for the first time and wow the magic just happened never forgotten that first kiss <laughs> wonderful and i love how you say you guys have been singing together ever since literally you guys have been singing yeah, together literally ever yeah yeah we've uh, once we met i sang a couple of times with him and his partner they sang places almost every weekend. I mean, they were a serious folk group. And when we came to Canada, Tony wasn't there with us, so we uh, sang together. We joined the Canadian Folk Music Association, CFMS as it was then. And soon both of us were on the board and I was doing all kinds of research in Alberta, collecting folk music and folk stories from people that had emigrated to Alberta from different countries like I did. And in fact, that 
became my second book. Uh, I did a book called A World of Stories based on the folk stories that I collected. And every community that I went to to collect stories uh, invited us to their special events. So we went Filipino events and German events and French events and First Nations events. And, you know, we sang with them and were taught things. And music was a big, big part of our life. And uh, we've never looked back. And it's great sadness to me now that I can't sing anymore. I've lost my voice because I get asthma badly. Legacy of living in polluted Manchester when I was a kid. And... uh, the medication I have to take has slackened my vocal cords, so what? I can't sing. Yeah, That's what happened to Julie Andrews. That's why she couldn't sing after a while. She had a bout with asthma, and the medication affected her the same way. Wow. Well, you sound, it sounds like you had a lot of years of singing up until just recently. We or? did. We did. And, but da- and David is still playing because he plays with the jazz band here on Panda, and uh, in fact is does several songs with them. And uh, I laugh about him. He's now 80 and he's he's still uh, got the boy band going. (laughs) (laughs) The the jazz boy band. Yeah. (laughs) Well, bringing it back to Pender there, we're going to get to the uh, second must-ask question of this program, and that is uh, who has helped you along the way on Pender Island? So uh, who's uh, helped you on Pender Island? Oh, so many people. I mean, that's a really hard one for me because – so many people in our life in Pender have helped us from Pat and Angela were wonderful when we first came over to live on Pender. You know, we'd been visiting for a long time, so we kind of knew how the island worked, except we didn't because it's different when you're a visitor to when you actually come to live here full time. And Russ and Shirley Searle were still running the grocery store, which we went to at Port Wash then and as I say, they they were great and they would get stuff in for us. And a lot of the old people were around there. Now, I don't know if you ever remember Marjorie Bailey at all. No, I've never heard the well, name. Well, she was the person that got the original library going. It was in the back of the church and it was known as the Pendalender. She She was wonderful. She taught me lots of things about how the island works. And Dr. Don was the doctor when we first came, and he was terrific. And he was always there for you when you needed him. And he's bailed me out a lot of times because we used to have a lot of visitors. And, you know, your visitors always get sick or stung or cut their finger off with a chainsaw when (laughs) there's no (laughs) medical clinic hours. This was before the clinic almost, yeah. Uh, So he was terrific. He was always there to bail us out. Lots of people. You know, we when I first came, because I wanted to know how the island worked, and David was working in Victoria at that time. He was head of the Museums Association in Victoria. And he took that job for three years because, you know, when you're freelance writers and musicians, banks don't like to give you a mortgage. So we needed a proper job. <laughs> so he worked in Victoria for three years. And I was over here on the island. The older people on Pender, they were the ones with the stories. They were the ones that knew how it worked, you know, because you always have to know who to go to. So it's, it's not a question of, okay, 
let's get these trees cut. It's okay, who do you get to get in and get the trees cut? So I I learned very quickly, you listen to the old folks, because they know not only know who does a good job, but which ones of the ones doing the job are going to turn up on time. This was a big deal. Sure. <laughs> turn up yeah. when you need them, you know, because pender time's a real thing. <laughs> was it more of a thing back in the day, do you think? Or is it a... Yeah, yeah. I remember when dear Jim Dunlop came and he did all our... Um, if you needed a dishwasher or a washing machine or something, Jim, you would phone him, you would leave a message... And he would turn up early. My goodness. Not only did he turn up on the day and the time, but he would be like 10 or 15 minutes earlier. We were all in our house coats. <laughs> we weren't expecting you for hours. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what are you doing here? So everybody used to tease Jim about this because he was so punctual and it was absolutely marvelous. But I also learned that you could never play favorites and you could never say a word about anybody because in those days, everybody was related. <laughs> and so sure, you yeah. never knew who you were talking to. So you were very careful about what you said. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. Discouraging yes, gossip yes. against people and yeah. uh, also get found out pretty quick. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, a good, it's a good thing. But okay, so it sounds like you've listed off a number of names. There are people that I don't know. And I think that's wonderful because I think for people listening who have been here for many years longer than I have, longer than a number of people to, yeah, remember people who have been here before or no longer with us. I think that it's great to honor. Yes. And a lot of those old people that we've since lost, you know, I'm so sorry that I didn't do what you were doing now and get the older stories. A couple that were very, very sweet to many of us newcomers were David and Florence Davidson, who owned Roseland. And, you know, they had this beautiful, beautiful little islet they would give us permission to walk on because okay. it was it was private land. And I loved uh, when David and I wanted to take a hike there, we would go in and we would wander down to the cabin and go and knock on the door. And of course, we had to have a visit with them before we went and took a walk on the little islet there. And they had fabulous stories. And David worked for Mr. Rowe. And he would tell us about the early days here and building the cabins and making the furniture. One of the biggest regrets I have is that we didn't get to tell Parks Canada about all the cabins because they were so, when the Parks Canada took over, they were very scared about the liability with these rotting cabins. And one of them was right on the edge of the cliff and that. So they took them down without collecting the stories from them. David had made the furniture from those. It was twig furniture and tables, slab tables with small tree trunks as the legs and everything. And it should have all been documented. And I really regret that I didn't see this coming and do it. Hmm. In the first uh, interview I did was with Kelly Irvin, and he spoke uh, at length about Roseland. And actually, I finished up that episode by going to the islet and recording the the outro at uh, the islet there. It's a very special place. Oh, it is. And you know, Florence and Dave used to walk down that islet every day 
to watch the sun go down. And that's why there's the little bench at the end there. Until they got old enough that Florence couldn't do it anymore. She she lost her ability to walk that far quite early. And I was pleased because the old bench was all rotting and they've redone it in the same way that Dave Davidson built it for Florence. And I often think of them when we walk down there. We sometimes take a picnic and a bottle of wine and we'll give them a toast, you know. <laughs> nice. Yeah, the bench is all spiffy now. It's, yeah. uh, it's very new. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful little walk that I let. It's great. Yeah. We're just nearing the end of our time coming up here. But before we get there, I just want to talk about your creative pursuits and interests right now. What are you? Can I talk about one other person? Well, two other people first. Please do. Okay. A family that became very, very dear to us indeed was Victor Reese and Sharon Brass and their son Solomon. And it was Victor who organized us working on the polls for the community hall for the Bear Mother Project. And Victor and Sharon were dear, dear friends. And they called us family and we called them family. And we spent lots and lots of times together. And one of the most wonderful evenings I've ever spent in my life was a New Year's Eve. And they came round with their family. It had happened very, very quickly. The family came down to visit and there was some kind uh, family machinations going on that Victor didn't want to deal with at New Year's. So he phoned me up and he said, can we come to you for New Year's? Like this is the day before. I said, sure. So he says, can I bring my family? Sure. How many? He says, nine. Okay. So I said, well, I'll make what my family used to make for New Year's Eve. And that was a meat and potato pie. And my family in Manchester used to make these meat and potato pies from the days when you could all you got was a meat bone, and so it was the flavor of the meat, but it was all potatoes, you know. But now mine has meat in it as well. But it was a traditional from the Clark side of the family. So Victor and Sharon said, fine, we'll bring the salmon. So we had this wonderful potluck for New Year's Eve. Sharon also made bannock. And we finished the meal. All the women, all the Aboriginal women came into the kitchen to help me clear up. And we were putting things away and washing dishes. And I heard some strange sounds in the living room. And I turned around and my furniture was being very carefully taken to pieces. Legs were being unscrewed from the table and it was all carried into the bedroom and the couch was taken apart and moved out. And I thought, what is going on? And all the lights were put out. And then the drums started. And we had a potlatch dance in just the light from the firelight of the stove. And the drums went and they taught us some of their family dances and we were eagles one minute, and then we were orcas the next, and we danced till the early hours of the morning. And then they left, and they put the furniture together and left. Dave and I went to bed somewhat bemused, but wonderful, wonderful evening. And afterwards, it was, it was some time later that I found out what had happened, and Victor's dad had died up in Prince Rupert 
and the family had descended upon him because he was the eldest son. And there were some negotiations to be done around the will. And Victor and Sharon didn't want to have their New Year's Eve spoiled. And they knew that if everybody came to my house, which was neutral territory, nobody would argue. <laughs> and so we ended up with one of the best New Year's Eves here on Pender that we've ever had in our life. Nice. Incredible energy that night, I would imagine. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, we've got lots of Victor's art, and he painted a drum for David, and he made me a potlatch spoon. So even though he died, what, eight, nine years ago now, Victor's still a big part of our life. Lovely. Looks like we're coming to the end here, but I'll I'll just throw it back to you for a last, last comment, last statement you want to send out, anything else that you want to share with people on this podcast? Well, I th I can't believe my luck living on Pender. And sometimes I wake up in the morning and we don't have curtains, not because we can't afford curtains, but why would you shut out the beauty around us? And I look across Navy Channel and often the eagle is fishing out there, you know, or if I wake up in the night, the moon's shining down and there's these beautiful cedar trees and so peaceful all around us and there's a right at the back there's this little tiny fear that I've not been good enough to deserve all this and I think what if the good fairy comes down and goes you don't deserve this zap and I'm back in working class Manchester <laughs> so I'm terribly grateful to live here and We've made wonderful friends here. We're getting older now, and neither of us want to move, even though our kids keep saying to us, wouldn't it be more convenient for you to be in the city? And But the friends we've made here are like family. And the support we get when something goes wrong, there's always people who appear magically to help us. And I would never get that support in the city. We don't want to move. I'm putting it out there. There's got to be some people out there that are going to help us build senior accommodation so people like us can stay. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good idea. But, yeah. uh, something that sounds like it's much needed because there's a there's a, a significant amount of population that's probably very interested and uh, in need of something like that. For that's sure. right. Yeah. yeah. Andrea, thank you. It's been a real pleasure and seriously to hear these stories. I really, really appreciated uh, listening to these. I've had a blast. Thanks for inviting me, Chris. All right. Well, to honor that interview, I decided I'd come down to Trinco Mallee to a lookout point just off of Swanson View Drive. So this area is located on the North Island and it's at the southernmost point of the North Island. And Trincomalee is its own little neighborhood, it seems like. And the reason I came down here is because of something Andrea said in the interview where she was talking about the eagle feeding. And while I was doing the edit on the interview, something about that comment reminded me of this place that I've come to numerous times and seen a lot of eagles. So there's an old wooden bench here. It's facing out towards the west. And I can see parts of Vancouver Island 
the ocean, a bunch of other small islands, and no eagles at the moment, but perhaps soon. Anyway, I want to thank Andrea once again so much for that interview. It was great. I want to thank you for listening, and until next time.